Well, yes, what Don said is true. And uh, good morning to you all again. Today we have something special planned for our time together. And as most of you know, we recently finished going through First and Second Peter in the Bible, verse by verse, and that was a profitable preaching time. And I trust you all were encouraged and strengthened by that time. And very soon, the next couple of weeks, we'll be starting to go through the gospel according to Mark on Sunday mornings. I'm very much looking forward to seeing the life of Christ throughout uh, the gospel of Mark. But before we begin that, I've decided to spend a few weeks doing some Bible Q&A. So yes, this morning will not be your typical sermon, a little bit out of uh, the normal routine, but nonetheless a good time. And I have to say that the practice of Bible Q&A is both biblical and valuable. It is valuable in that all Christians have questions, and there needs to be some forum for them to ask questions and get some answers. And it's biblical in that we see Bible Q&A happening in the Bible. Take the letter of 1 Corinthians, for example. Paul had written to the Corinthians before, and his initial letter raised some questions. They wanted to know more about some, about some things. So while Paul was in Ephesus, a three-man delegation arrived from Corinth with a list of questions for Paul to answer. They had questions about marriage, about spiritual gifts, about food sacrificed to idols, a whole bunch of things. And so to answer these questions and to address some other concerns, Paul wrote them the letter that we now call 1 Corinthians. And so it very much is some Bible Q&A. When you transport yourself back into the early church, you see how important the practice of question and answer was. Everyone was a new Christian. And they had questions that needed answers. And the ability to ask questions and get answers was essential to the growth and stability of the church. The early church certainly allowed for Q&A. In fact, it carried over as part of their tradition. Jewish rabbis always allowed for questions, Jesus being no exception. If you remember, the disciples and the crowds always asked Jesus questions, and he always answered them, except when he could discern they were asking from impure motives. But nonetheless, even Jesus valued the practice of asking and answering good questions. And here in the church today, our Sunday morning service has become pretty rigid, much more so than the early church. And so there's just no time or place for these open-ended questions. But this can be a problem because Christians of all ages today still have questions. They still need answers. It still is essential to the growth and stability of Christians today. Now here at our church, to help with this, on Sunday evenings when I teach, the floor is open for questions, any question you might have regarding our subject matter. We, we do that on Sunday nights. But I figured it would be good to integrate some truly open-ended Bible question and answer time here on Sunday mornings so that anyone can ask a question and that everyone can benefit from the answer. So that is what we will be doing this Sunday and next. And we had a good turnout of questions that were submitted beforehand. And we're just going to jump right in and go through. We'll see how many we can get through today. And then all the rest we'll try and get through next week. And I've decided to start us off with a bang. Literally. First question. You always get one of these whenever I've done these in the past in my previous church. What does the Bible say about creation and the Big Bang Theory? What does the Bible say about creation and the Big Bang Theory? So it's a good question, a good question to start with, because it takes us back to the beginning of the Bible itself. So why don't you take your Bibles and turn to the very beginning. 
Not the table of contents, but Genesis chapter 1. I trust you know where that is. Genesis chapter 1. Now, I could give the, the super simple answer to this question and move on. You know, the Bible says God created everything in six literal days, and the Bible says nothing about the Big Bang Theory because it's not true. But I imagine that whoever asked this question probably wants to know a little bit more than that. And so well, let's study this a little bit more. I've also found this to be a pretty common question among Christians, so I think we can benefit all from this. Just to begin, refresh our memories, of course, let's read together Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to just look at the first day of creation, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, one day. So keep reading the chapter. The rest of Genesis 1 continues like this. God speaks. Our universe then comes into existence, a little bit more added each day. This culminates on day 6 with creation of man, after which God declares all things to be very good. And he rests on the seventh day. The creation account in Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 through 2 is not natural, but supernatural. It's not slow, but quick. And it's not distant, but recent in history. According to the Bible, although appearing mature, the age of the earth can be no more than 10,000 years or so. Now, this account of the origin of the universe sits in stark contrast to what's called the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory today is held by many to be the correct explanation for the origin of the universe. Back in the 1920s and the 30s, astronomers had long since accepted evolution to be true and the age of the Earth to be very old, and God was not in the picture. That was already their conclusion And now that God was discounted, astronomers started looking for an alternate explanation, not for the origin of life, but for the origin of everything, the universe. If if God didn't do it, then how did it happen? As they looked upward, they determined that the other stars in the galaxies were receding away from Earth. Everything appeared to be moving away from our vantage point. And assuming we're not at the actual center of the universe... The only explanation then is that all regions of the universe are receding from one another. And what could this mean? As a side note, you can't really observe stars moving in space. They move way too slow. This is all mathematical models. But nonetheless, what could this mean? Remember, all observations must be interpreted. And astronomers back then interpreted this data as evidence for a Big Bang. They reason that if you were to project the movement of the stars backward in time, well, you must eventually get to a single point, and the universe must have come from this single point of origin. And over time, this developed into a more full-fledged Big Bang theory. And according to the theory today, some 14 billion years ago, all of the matter and energy of the universe was condensed into a single infinitely small and infinitely dense point 
And then at some point in time, it exploded. And all of the matter expanded outward, reaching into the outer limits of space. Over time, the initial matter and radiation cooled down, allowing the subatomic particles to be formed. That's your you know, protons, electrons, neutrons. After even more time, it cooled down further. You had the first atom, hydrogen, formed. And the early universe then consisted of this cloud of hydrogen gas that just kept expanding outward, condensing. As these gl- gas clouds started to collapse in on themselves due to local gravity, stars were formed. And everything within a six trillion mile diameter condensed to form a star. In this manner, 100 billion galaxies were formed, each with 100 billion stars within them, all from a single point. The formation of planets is harder to explain because the the natural formation of heavier elements is not uh, so easy to explain itself. Scientists use supernova to explain the formation of these heavy elements, which themselves were once swirling clouds of dust. One way or another, according to the theory, over 14 billion years, everything we see today came from this Big Bang. Back in 1964, this theory gained much wider approval and acceptance with the discovery of cosmic microwave background radiation. Remember that? You ever hear about that? All space was observed to have the same background radiation at 2.725 Kelvin, interpreted to be the remnant of the Big Bang. This, this must be it. This must be the, the leftover radiation from the Big Bang. Since that time, the Big Bang theory has been treated as a foregone conclusion. However, this theory is far, very far from a foregone conclusion. Of course, atheists want you to believe that this has somehow been proven and it is as sure as fact. But like evolution, it's simply a theory. There are several reasons why you should reject the Big Bang Theory. And let's talk about those now. First, and most importantly, the Big Bang Theory is unbiblical. Scripture is our authority. We submit to God and his word, not to man and his reason. And whereas man's definition of truth changes every year, God's word stays the same. And when compared to biblical creation, the Big Bang is incompatible. For example, according to the Bible, the earth was created before the sun. According to the Big Bang, the sun came before the earth. According to the Bible, the earth came before all of the stars. That happened on day four. According to the Big Bang, all of the stars came long before any planet. According to the Big Bang Theory, or rather, excuse me, according to the Bible, the stars and the planets were formed instantly and supernaturally. According to the Big Bang, everything was created naturally over a long period of time. Lastly, according to the Bible, the universe must be young, 10,000 years or younger. According to the Big Bang, the universe is, well, they used to think 20 billion years. Now it's 13.7 billion years old. For these reasons and more, biblical creation and the Big Bang Theory are mutually exclusive. Both cannot be true. It's really either or. And many Christians, they've tried so hard to, tr- to squeeze billions of years into Genesis chapter 1 to try and get the best of both worlds, but it, it just doesn't work. 
There's the day-age theory, the gap theory, the framework hypothesis. We've actually studied these on Wednesday nights back when we were going through Genesis. But these all play fast and loose with the Bible, violating the text and the context. The Bible itself is plain that God created all things in six days, and this does not fit with the Big Bang Theory. When people hear this, some, some think, well, wait a second. I mean, haven't scientists proven the Big Bang? So does that mean we have to choose between the Bible and science? And the answer is no. You never have to choose between the Bible and science. God created everything. He created science. And God's word will always accord with true science, which he created. It's just don't expect true, unbiased, scientific conclusions of data from those who are opposed to God. Because you won't find unbiased interpretations of data. The Big Bang Theory is no exception. Itself, it is far from proven. A few words on this. There are many what's called fudge factors in the Big Bang Theory. These are these assumed hypothetical entities that have never been observed, like they're called inflation or dark matter, dark energy. We've never seen or even detected these things. They're all hypothetical. But without them, the Big Bang cannot have happened. So much of this is still in the realm of complete conjecture and theory that for someone to dare and claim this is fact is really absurd. The fact that scientific conclusions change every single year simply reflects that we're not dealing with simple, objective facts here. It's really just the majority opinion of scientists alive at the time. Additionally, there are several fatal flaws with the Big Bang Theory itself. It cannot account for the universe as we know it today. I'll give you one example, and I'm going to try not to get overly technical with you here, which can be a problem for me. But it's called the horizon problem in the Big Bang Theory. According to the Big Bang, the universe started from one infinitely small point with you know, nearly infinite energy and infinite temperature, then it just exploded outward and it just expanded and cooled down, right? That's what they think happened. The universe now, what's it look like? It's greatly expanded and it's very cold. It's cooled down almost to nothing. In fact, the temperature of outer space has reached what's called equilibrium, nearly equilibrium which means it's all the same temperature everywhere. It's at 2.7 Kelvin. That's almost absolute zero. Put in perspective, that's minus 455 degrees Fahrenheit. It's pretty cold in space. But this is a problem for the Big Bang Theory because there hasn't been enough time since the supposed Big Bang for all of space to reach equilibrium in temperature. And here's just an example to help you think this through. Imagine you've got a hot cup of coffee and your hands are freezing cold. So what do you do? You put your hands around the cup. And over time, you have this thing called heat exchange. Your hands get warmer, the coffee gets cooler. Eventually, though, there will come a time when you're no longer exchanging heat. Your hands and the cup are the same temperature, and that's called equilibrium. There's no more heat exchange. Right now, the universe is essentially in equilibrium. But there hasn't been nearly enough time for this to happen. Just picture this. You've got point A in the universe, and it's 
20 billion light years away from point B in the universe. Well, the fastest these two points can exchange heat is 20 billion years, speed of light. 20 billion years. And for them to change, exchange heat really would uh, take longer than this for them to reach equilibrium, much more than 20 billion years. The problem is that according to the Big Bang Theory, everything is 14 billion years old. There just hasn't been anywhere near enough time for the universe to all be the same temperature. Like I said, it's called the horizon problem. I know for many of you, this stuff just goes way over your head, so we'll, we'll kind of pull it in from there. But look, you can do plenty of your own research, and you yourself will discover the countless fatal flaws with this Big Bang Theory. In fact, it's so flawed that secular scientists themselves are turning on the Big Bang Theory. Not long ago, a collection of hundreds of scientists published an open letter rejecting the Big Bang Theory. And keep in mind, this is not coming from Christians or churches or religious organizations. This is coming from secular, atheistic scientists. But they themselves have come to reject the Big Bang because they recognize the evidence for it is weak and conjectural. The evidence against it is actually very strong. If this interests you, just go online and search for this. Big Bang Theory, open letter, and you'll see it. Read for yourself. Big Bang Theory, open letter. But to wrap this up here, just don't be intimidated by so-called science. I think that's a problem for many Christians. Because, look, you probably don't know what a quark-gluon particle is, but that doesn't mean you need to be intimidated by scientists and their conclusions. God's word is true. And it proves itself true when all evidence is rightly examined. And also remember, the unbeliever who is in rebellion against God, he views all data through the lens of naturalism. I mean, they discount God as a possibility from the very beginning. So what do you expect? You're going to get biased interpretation of data from them. Realize that fallen man has always looked for ways to deny God and affirm themselves because at the end of the day, they don't want to live in a world where God is the creator because that means they're accountable to this holy, just, supreme creator God. They don't want to be accountable for their lives and everything they've done to a supreme being. Finally, understand that those who believe in the Big Bang Theory as the explanation for the origin of the universe, to believe that requires just as much, if not more, faith than we need to believe that God created all things supernaturally. Big Bang Theory still doesn't explain where the Big Bang itself came from. It really is something you choose to believe by faith. Only our view is based on the more sure word, and our view can actually account for everything as it exists today. Now, I struggle here because I could spend the rest of the time talking about this stuff. If you, for those who know my background, you know I spent a lot of time with the whole creation-evolution debate. But the intention was to cover more than just one question and answer. So we're going to move on now. You can always talk to me later. I can give you more resources on Big Bang Theory and stuff like that. But let us now move on to question number two and get to a little bit more Bible-oriented questions instead of all this science stuff. So question number two, as we chart on in this Q&A that you guys have asked, what does the Bible say about who were the apostles? 
And specifically was James, the half-brother of Jesus, an apostle. So who are the apostles and what about James? This can be a quicker answer because just asking who are the apostles. First, let me say this, that in the Greek, the word for apostle, apostolos, simply means an official representative charged with commission. In this regard, any special messenger can be called an apostle. But as you know, in the New Testament, the word apostle came to have a greater, more technical meaning, referring to a special group of representatives. New Testament apostles are certain men chosen by the risen Lord himself to be his representatives for the church. In fact, these are the two major requirements for apostleship. First, you had to have seen the risen Lord. You had to have witnessed the resurrection. And then second, you had to have been called and commissioned as an apostle by the Lord Jesus himself or the other apostles. The role of the apostles was to guide the church on earth as Christ's representatives after his ascension. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the apostles and the prophets came together to form the foundation for the church, with Christ himself being the cornerstone. The job of the apostles was to spread the gospel, tell people about Jesus, and plant churches. And they themselves had full authority over the churches. In an age before the New Testament was complete, they were the authoritative source of God's revelation and will. And it's no accident that every single book of the New Testament was written by apostles or those with apostolic authority. Now, regarding the question, who were the actual apostles? Well, as you know, during Christ's ministry, he had many disciples, but he chose 12 in particular to be his special representatives. And Judas Iscariot was discounted, so after the resurrection, there were 11. 11 disciples who then became the 11 apostles. Now, shortly after the ascension, the apostles recognized the need to replace Judas. Do you remember that? And so they appointed Matthias to be the 12th apostle. Matthias himself had witnessed the resurrection. So now we're at 12. There's a few more mentioned. You got Paul. Most of you know that Paul was regarded as an apostle. Although Paul was not a Christian during Christ's time on earth, he did witness the risen Lord. In fact, Paul was converted through Christ's direct intervention and he was given a special commission as an apostle by the risen Lord himself. Paul speaks about his apostleship in many of his letters, but Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 is a key reference. In addition to Paul, there was Barnabas, Paul's co-laborer, who's also referred to as an apostle in scripture. Acts 14, verse 14, Paul and Barnabas are both called apostles in the same sentence. Although we don't know much of Barnabas' history, he is put on the same level as Paul when it comes to apostleship. And then now we come to James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was he an apostle? Do you know? And the answer is, yes, he was. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was an apostle. It can be a little confusing because there's another famous apostle named James. James, the brother of John. Remember this? James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And they're that inner circle, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Jesus. 
But that James, he was martyred very early on. He was the first to go. And his special role in the church was replaced by the other James, James, the half-brother of Jesus. So Galatians 2.9 reports that James, Peter, and John were pillars of the church, but now we're talking about James, the half-brother of Jesus. Anyway, James, the brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, but he did not believe in his brother as Messiah until after the resurrection. His eyes were closed to this. But after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James and he was converted. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, both states that James witnessed the resurrection and he, he's put on the same level as the other apostles. So the answer is yes, James, the half-brother of Jesus, was an apostle. As a side note, it's good to know that Christ's own brother eventually came around and confessed him as Savior. It'd be really bad if James grew up saying, oh, that Jesus, I'm, I would never believe in him as, as God and Savior. I mean, do you know how rotten he was growing up? Do you know how much he sinned? That would be bad, but thankfully that didn't happen. Anyway, this brings the official count in the New Testament to 15. 15 mentioned as apostles. Totally possible that there could have been a few more but none are explicitly mentioned in Scripture, so we'll leave it at 15. Question number three. There's another good one. What does the Bible say about separation between believers and unbelievers? What does the Bible say about separation between believers and unbelievers? Namely, should believers ever associate with unbelievers, and can they fellowship together? Good question. The question that is common amongst Christians. I know many are probably wondering the same thing. That's why I chose it. So let's talk about this. The Bible does directly address this issue. And there are several passages you want to keep in mind. And have you turn to the first one now. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll start here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to begin by asking the question, is it okay to associate with non-Christians, with unbelievers? Can you associate with unbelievers? Remember how I said 1 Corinthians is kind of like a Q&A letter? Well, in the passage we're going to look at, Paul was clarifying one of his earlier answers. So make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and start off at verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now here, Paul is referencing a letter that he wrote to them before 1 Corinthians, a previous letter. And he told them in that letter, hey, listen, do not associate with the immoral. That's all he said. Do not associate with the immoral. But the Corinthians misunderstood what Paul meant. What did he mean? When he said, do not associate with the immoral. Well, he's going to clarify now in verse 10. So now look at verse 10. He says, do not associate with the immoral. But to clarify, verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, 
I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge those who are within the church. But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. <clears throat> this is a hugely instructive passage. And first off, we have a very clear explanation that Christians are not prohibited from associating with unbelievers. And notice, Paul doesn't call them unbelievers. He calls them immoral, covetous, swindlers, idolaters. Part of the reason is that it would be impossible to not associate with unbelievers. Then you would have to go out of the world. You'd have to live on Mars. Unbelievers are everywhere, even the immoral, and you cannot avoid associating with them. The person checking out your groceries, the fast food attendant, your hairstylist, school teachers. And try as you might, but those who do not know God are everywhere. You cannot avoid associating with them, nor are you told to do so. Keep in mind, this word for associate means to mix together with, to mingle with, or to keep company with. So it is not wrong to spend time with non-Christians as long as you are keeping yourself from evil. It is not wrong to eat with non-Christians. If your pagan neighbor invites you over for dinner, go for it. So long as it's not a wild drinking party. I mean, you get the point. So long as you are not being dragged into sin yourself or defilement, it is acceptable for Christians to associate with non-Christians. What Paul really says here is do not associate with the phony Christian, the so-called Christian who lives like a total unbeliever. Paul says do not even eat with such a one. Rather, remove such a person from the church and treat them as an outsider. They are to be, in a sense, shunned. In the context, 1 Corinthians 5, this is dealing with the believer earlier in the chapter, or the Christian, who was caught in immorality, and the church didn't do anything about it. We'll actually come back to this passage later, but the believers, they just let him be. Really, what they should have done was to discipline him, either leading to his repentance or his removal. But they should not have gone on fellowshipping with him and associating with him. This is serious business because if you associate with a so-called Christian who lives like a total unbeliever, you are, in a sense, validating their hypocrisy. By not doing anything about it, you're saying it's okay, and it's not okay. Their hypocrisy is throwing up a wedge between you and them, more importantly, between them and the Lord. And unless that is dealt with first, there can be no meaningful relationship. They claim to be a Christian, they open themselves up to being held accountable for their sin. Now, we don't have time to talk about how to deal with so-called Christians. That's a separate question. In general, though, believers can, can keep company with unbelievers. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. What matters most is that we remain unstained by the world and its influence. It's like Jesus prayed for us, that we would not be 
out of the world, but that we would be kept from the world. That we'd be in the world, but not of the world, as he said. John chapter 17, verses 14 through 16 reads, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. When Jesus came, he was in the world. He was surrounded by wicked, immoral, godless men. I mean, look, just walk down the street and you're surrounded. There's nowhere you can go and no exception for Jesus. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. He never succumbed to the world's evil. And there's a huge difference. Now, i got to throw this in there. At this point, someone always brings up the fact that, hey, look, well, Jesus, in fact, he spent most of his time with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Therefore, not only is it okay for us to spend time with unbelievers, we should spend all of our time with unbelievers. In fact, we should meet them on their territory. Therefore, it's okay for Christians to, to go to a bar, have a drink with unbelievers, and, and share the gospel in, in bars. You ever heard this? It's this, I would say, not so fast. And people get this wrong here. Yes, it's true. Jesus did spend time with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. He even dined with them, Mark chapter 2. We'll, we'll see that in a couple of months. But there's a huge difference here. And do you know what the difference is? Do you know what the difference is? It's that by the time Jesus fellowshiped with these people, they had changed. Jesus did not first fellowship with this wicked tax collector named Matthew, and then after that, call Matthew to follow him. It didn't work like that. First, Jesus called Matthew to follow him. Then, Matthew stopped being a wicked tax collector. Then Jesus fellowshiped with him. Do you get it? The same goes for for the prostitutes, the women caught in adultery. These women first repented, changed, and then Jesus fellowshiped with them and brought them in as his disciples. Again, it's not wrong to spend time with unbelievers, those who have not repented, But there is no meaningful fellowship there. And you certainly can't use Jesus as an example to justify going to bars and, and going to the places where wickedness happens. Jesus never engaged with unbelievers in their wickedness. And that never happened. And also know that although you can fellowship with unbelievers, you can have no fellowship with them. Or rather, although you can associate with unbelievers, you can have no fellowship with them. And there is an important difference to make here. There's a distinction between association and fellowship. Jesus never fellowshiped with the ungodly. Here's another verse to turn to. Just just flip the page to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians 6, and look now at verse 14. Here's another very clear message. And we get the picture that he's again clarifying himself to this Corinthian audience, but nonetheless, 
Verse 14. He says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You can stop there. We have a very direct and explicit command. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. It's, it's, It's super clear. Your translation might say, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The picture is of two dissimilar animals yoked together trying to plow a field. So let's picture this. Picture an ox yoked with a donkey. Are they going to plow a straight line? No, they're not. And so you don't put them together. Don't be unequally yoked. You get two oxen or two donkey or whatever, but don't be unequally yoked. The same goes for believers and unbelievers. The idea here is not that of association. Notice among all these parallel words he uses, he doesn't say, do not associate with unbelievers. He's already clarified that in 1 Corinthians. Rather, all of these synonyms that he uses, they're stronger than just association. They all carry the idea of partnership or fellowship or union. This is where you are bound together with an unbeliever as one. Clearly, this passage prohibits believers from marrying unbelievers. There's no stronger bond than human marriage. And to do so would be going against the simple direct command. This, is all, this would also preclude any sort of spiritual relationships with unbelievers or, or any type of close union you can think of. There can be no fellowship with unbelievers, not because you don't want to, but because you can't. You're not able to. Our fellowship with one another is derived from our fellowship first with the Lord. And they don't have that. Therefore, it's just not even possible to have a meaningful, true, spiritual fellowship with unbelievers. So the, the idea where you know, you, you just, you have your best friends with an unbeliever, you, you bear your heart and your soul to them, they're guiding your life spiritually, it just doesn't exist. There's no place for that. They are darkness, you are light, there's no harmony there. So to try and wrap this question up now, yes, it is okay to spend time and associate with unbelievers. It is okay. You can eat with them. You can go to a baseball game with them. You can be in a new mom's group with them. You can have them cut your hair or serve you food and all that stuff. That is, that is not prohibited. And you can be friends with unbelievers, but only in a shallow sense. Maybe there's a person... You love surfing, they love surfing, and you guys go out surfing together even though they're a non-Christian. You spend time together, that, that's fine. But you can never have a truly meaningful friendship with them on the level of Christian fellowship because you're missing the most important factor in our relationships, and that is the Lord. All this being the case, one of the primary reasons the Lord left us behind on earth and pray that we would be in the world is so that we can witness to the world about him. And so if you have these unbelieving friends or acquaintances, you should be, when you spend time with them, sharing the gospel with them. 
I mean, if you really care about them, then you would hope that they would not perish. Is your commission then to share the good news with them, to tell them about the Lord, call them to believe? Here's the thing, though. If you're faithful to do this, if you plead with your unbelieving friends often, it is doubtful that they'll want to remain your friends for very long. That's usually how mature Christians come to have only Christian friends. They used to have non-Christian friends, but they got so tired of hearing about Jesus, they just stopped returning your calls. And that's just how it is sometimes. At the same time, though, it is good for Christians to prioritize spending time with the saints. Because you're called to fellowship with one another. You're called to encourage one another, to build up one another, to correct one another. You can only do this in the church with other believers. Only in the church, among those who have submitted to Jesus as Lord and Savior, can you have those truly soul-satisfying, meaningful, God-honoring, you know, David and Nathan type of friendships. Only with other believers can you really get that. And I would encourage you to look for that and to prioritize that in your life. So that'll do it for this question. Can believers associate with unbelievers? Yes. Can they fellowship? No, they cannot. All right, question number four. Treading along. A short one, a quick one, but you've got to have a few questions like this in here. Number four, how many books are in the Bible? This question was asked by, I think, one of our kiddos. And uh, they're in Sunday school right now, but I, I told them I would answer anyway. So here we go. How many books are in the Bible? The answer is 66, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. But to make things interesting, you could say you could see this a little bit differently, actually. That's because many ancient Jews viewed the Torah... Genesis through Deuteronomy as one book. Also, originally, 1st, 2nd Samuel was one book. 1st, 2nd Kings was one book. 1st, 2nd Chronicles was one book. And the Jews regarded all 12 minor prophets as just the prophets, one book. When you come to the New Testament, everything truly is distinct, except Luke and Acts. Both were written by Luke's, and they really was they were part one and part two of the same story. So technically, we could call that one book as well. So if you want to get creative, you could say that there are only 47 books of the Bible. Keep in mind, we're not changing the content of the Bible here, just how the Bible is organized. And if you are curious, how did the Bible come to be organized the way it is today? Well, you should have asked that question. (laughs) And we're moving on to question number five. By the way, it's not too late. If you want to squeeze in a few more questions, you can always let me know for next Sunday. I can always choose which ones I want to handle. Number five, though, what does the Bible say about church membership? What does the Bible say about church membership? It's a question I've dealt with in these little membership classes we have, but uh, we've only had a few of those, and obviously not everyone goes. So a fair question that I think is good for everyone to hear on at least once. Some people, for whatever reason, they're, they're so against the idea of local church membership. And they're very adamant to point out, like, the word member and membership is not in the Bible. And that's true. I do not know why some people are so opposed to the idea of church membership, but I do know that just because a given word is not in the Bible does not mean that the concept is not clearly taught. 
In the New Testament, the words Trinity and atonement are not in the Bible. They're not in the New Testament. But we use those words to refer to very clear theological concepts taught in Scripture. The same applies to local church membership. Local church membership is, in fact, very important. The label is not important. I mean, call it whatever you want. It it doesn't matter. Call it membership or belonging or community or commitment or whatever. Think of a title. It doesn't matter. What matters is getting right what Scripture says about local church involvement. And God expects all believers to be personally committed to a local body of believers. I've said this many, many times, but I'll say it again. The idea of a lone ranger Christian who doesn't belong anywhere, who does not assemble with the saints on a regular basis, just does their own thing, is completely unbiblical and wrong. The idea that you can just sit at home, watch church on TV, and never gather with the saints is patently unbiblical The idea is completely foreign to the New Testament. Christians who find themselves not attending and committing to a local church for years either live in a spiritual desert where there are no sufficiently good biblical churches or they have a serious misunderstanding about the role and importance of the local church or they know better and they're just in disobedience. I can't control what anyone does, but I can make sure you at least know what God's word says about the importance and the role of the local church. And so let's do this now. Let's talk about this a little bit. Although the word church membership is not in the New Testament, the concept is loud and clear and is very important. So let's let's get into this now. First, there is evidence that the early church kept a record of who belonged to the church. According to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, after Peter's preaching, 3,000 people were saved and added to the Jerusalem church, the first church. How'd they know that? Someone counted. Someone counted. They, they counted, and it wasn't just counting. They tracked the growth and the progress of the Jerusalem church. Later, in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, more people believe And the total number now comes to 5,000, which means 2,000 more were added to the Jerusalem church. How'd they know that? They were counting and they were tracking. This is a cumulative total. Why would they do this? Because it's very important to know from a leadership perspective who's in and who's out. Who are your sheep and who aren't your sheep? And we got more evidence of this listing in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you're quick... Turn there now. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. See another passage on on these lists. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul instructs the church that the church needs to step up and take care of widows. But not all widows. Only certain widows who meet certain requirements. Namely, they're of a certain age. They've lived a godly example. And they don't have any family left to take care of them. For widows who meet these criterion, the church needs to step up, take care of them. And they do that first by putting them on the list. What is this list? 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verse 9. 
He says a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Verse 10 goes on to give more qualifications. Now verse 11. He says, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, and so on. Verse 12, it gives more qualifications. But what's the point here? It's this list that I'm pointing you to. Notice this list is not indefinite, but it's definite, meaning it's a specific thing. He doesn't say put them on a list. He says put them on the list. They knew what he was talking about. Paul needed, he did not need to clarify Timothy and the early church leaders were well acquainted with such lists. And what does this tell us? That church leaders were to know their sheep and track their sheep by name, much like real shepherds do. Yes, 1 Timothy 5 is only in regards to widows. That that much is certainly true. But what is the principle we've seen in play already? The church valued the ability to keep track of sheep for shepherding purposes. People were known to belong to a church by name. Take Romans 16, for example. You don't have to turn there, but at the end of Romans, if you read the book, at the very end, Paul greets some 30 people in the church of Rome by name. And here's the thing. When Paul wrote Romans, at that time, he had never been to Rome yet. He hadn't been to Rome. So how did Paul know all these people belong to the church of Rome by name? because it was common knowledge among the shepherds whom Paul did talk to. Those in the early church knew who belonged to what church, and when people transferred churches, that was common knowledge as well. They kept track. Now listen to this verse. I'll just read it for you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. We looked at this verse a while ago, as you know. And Peter, remember, he's not speaking to one church, but to a collection of churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. And he says to them, to each of the elders among you, to shepherd the flock of God among you. Each church has their own elders, and each elder is charged with the task of shepherding the flock among them. Their task is not to shepherd the universal flock. Their task is to shepherd their local flock. This means they must know their flock. They must know who their sheep are. There must be some way to delineate which sheep belong to which church and are under which elders. Along these lines, now listen to this verse, Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Hebrews 13, 17. This is now a direct command for the sheep. And what's the command? Obey your leaders and submit to them. But wait a second. If a person does not identify with a local church and its local leaders, then who are they called to obey and submit to? I mean, every leader? I mean, someone across the country? Someone they don't even know? I mean, how do you even know that they're qualified? 
You're just called to submit to everyone who calls himself a leader. Also, from the perspective of leadership, who are leaders accountable for? Notice in this verse, leaders will give an account to God of the souls placed in their charge. But who are those souls? Local church membership, or something like it, is the only way for people to have clearly identified leaders and for leaders to have clearly identified people. Shepherds are accountable to God for shepherding the flock, and membership is how they know who they're accountable to God for. At the same time, sheep are accountable to God for obeying their leaders, and membership is how they know which leaders they are accountable to. Again, call it whatever you want. It doesn't matter. But some level of formal commitment must exist in the local church for this to happen. One last passage. If you want, you can turn back to 1 Corinthians 5, but I'll just read it for you. We were at this passage earlier. Now I'll read the first two verses. And Paul says to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality as such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Verse 2. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Here Paul is referencing disassociating from phony Christians who live in unrepentant sin through church discipline. His instructions, which he mentions again in verse 13, are to remove the wicked man from among you. Remove them. But, but wait a second. How can you remove someone if they never belonged? How can you exclude someone if they were never included? You see, if there's no formal commitment and sense of belonging to a local church that they are in, then the whole idea of church discipline and removing people breaks down and becomes rather worthless. Formal exclusion from the church where you're declaring you are no longer of us because of what they have done. Formal exclusion implies and requires first formal inclusion. There has to be some way to declare you are part of this body. So in the end, we find that the concept of church membership is taught throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's assumed all throughout the New Testament, even though the word does not occur, just like the word Trinity. But this doesn't change the teaching that God values your commitment to a local body of believers. Being involved and committed to a local body of believers is essential to your own spiritual growth and theirs. Because God saved us to be knit together in one body, each of us benefiting from the spiritual gifts of one another. Let me just think about it. Teaching, worshiping, fellowshipping, ministering, equipping, giving, exhorting, rebuking. These only make sense in the context of a local body of believers. You can't do this from your couch as you watch church on TV. It's not possible. Along these lines, I would encourage all of you here to really consider your commitment to this or any local church. 
Some people are, are scared of commitment, which is part of the real issue. They don't want to commit because they don't want to be accountable to leaders. And maybe it's because they're hiding some sin. Or for others, maybe because in the past they got burnt by some ungodly leaders. They got mistreated by a bad church. Sad, but it's true. That happens. People get mistreated. Along these lines, though, I I would encourage you not to let this keep you from still getting involved in a local church. You need to learn to desire having godly and qualified leaders in your life who look out for you and who actually care for your soul, not mistreating you, because that's such a blessing. I mean, you should be seeking and thanking God for shepherds in your life who can help you, who are there to help you actually grow and become more like Christ. That is a good thing, and you should want that. Even if you have been, sadly, mistreated by ungodly leaders in the past, God still calls you to place yourself under his under-shepherds. So find qualified elders in a good church and commit. And thankfully, I can say here that our elders, by no means perfect, myself certainly included, are godly and qualified, and they care about your spiritual walks so much. We really do love the sheep here, and we want to see you all growing in the Lord and fellowshipping with him and one another and seeking him. And we have by far your best interests in mind. If you are perhaps one who is on the outside, still looking in at this church, I would encourage you to take the next step. Get involved. Plug in. Fellowship with the saints more. Serve one another. And you can come ask me about membership. Just a a simple, formal step we do where you can declare to the body that I'm here. This is my, my spiritual family now, and I'm among you, and so forth. In fact, next week we have the the joy and the privilege, next Sunday after church, we'll be welcoming new family as members into the church. Look forward to that. So consider these truths on scripture about membership. It is in the Bible, although the word is not there, the concept is, and God values your relationship to the local church. Well, now we are out of time, and so we'll end it here. If we didn't get to your question this week, do not worry. We'll come back next week and get through some more questions And this should be a good time. For now, let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for time in your word, time going through questions. We all are at different places in our walk with you, Lord, and we all are at different levels of understanding of your word, and therefore questions come up, and that's a good thing. Your word is here as our, our resource to constantly guide us in the truth and to answer questions Lord, we ask not in doubt, but in faith, just seeking to know you better and to know your word better so that we might worship you more. What matters most, Lord, is that we follow and confess your Son as Lord and Savior, that we seek him all of our days and we strive to grow more into his image. I pray that our pursuit of knowledge does not merely fill our heads, but enables our feet and our hands to to act, that we indeed might uh, please you and pursue Christ all the more. We thank you again for this time. Bless us as we go from here now. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.